0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hello, I'm James Carlton. Welcome to God Forbid. Today, the eternal human desire to reveal secrets, not gossip, but confession. Confessing wrongs to friends, crime to police, sins to priests, even confessing love from one to another. We're not compelled to confess, and it may cause problems if we do, yet we seem to do it all the same. On social media we do it, even on reality TV, and sometimes simply in silent contemplation. It seems getting things off your chest is innate to the human condition. And on the God forbid panel today, two experts who see this every day. Dr. Jared Webster is a psychoanalyst and forensic psychologist who for 25 years has worked with survivors and perpetrators of child sexual abuse. He's the former president of the Association for the Treatment of Sexual Abuse. He's lectured at the Australian Catholic University and his expertise on children who themselves abuse other children saw him co-write the guidelines that are now followed by every Catholic systemic school in New South Wales. Jared Webster, welcome to God Forbid. Hi, James. We'll get to your work with abusers and the abused later in the show, but first, why do people feel this need to confess?
2: I think it's fundamental to human relationships. Um, We can all keep a facade up, but if we really want to have a relationship, we have to be known and we have to know the other. And that can't be kept by keeping those very personal, often shame-filled parts of ourselves to ourselves. There's nothing more intimate than somebody sharing parts of oneself that are usually kept very private. And to be on the receiving end of that is a tremendous honour, but also an experience of closeness that rarely comes in in another form.
1: But the price of that sharing could be the opposite, not enhancing the closeness, but ending the relationship.
2: It's a risk, yeah. These disclosures carry a huge risk of rejection, which of course is why somebody wouldn't disclose. Some people will take secrets to the grave with them, but they'll never be truly known. As some people would say, they lead half-lives rather than full lives that are fully connected with others.
1: Also with us on the God Forbid panel, the Reverend Dr. Dorothy Lee. She's Professor of New Testament Studies at the University of Divinity's Trinity College. She was a Uniting Church Minister before her ordination as an Anglican priest. In fact, she's now a member of the Anglican Church's Doctrine Commission, and her dozen-plus books and chapters on the Gospel of John are studied around the world. Dorothy Lee, welcome to God Forbid.
0: Hi, James.
1: Why do you think people confess, even though it can be potentially against their interest to do so?
0: I think there's a human urge to uh, not to hold secrets. I think it's a burden um when you hold secrets and it draws emotional energy from you. To be able to reveal something gives you uh, well at least what you're hoping for is a sense of connection and we want to be connected and to feel confirmed and affirmed in community. And it's very hard to do that if you're holding a shameful secret or a secret that you think is shameful.
1: Does the ritual of confession, the sacrament, fit into that too?
0: Oh, yes, very much so. It makes it concrete. I mean, when you go to confession to a priest, you're, of course, confessing to God, but you're also confessing to someone who represents the church, the whole church. So there is a kind of openness about it, even more than just telling a close friend or a member of your family. And somehow that ritual action and the response from the priest makes real, makes more concrete both what you're doing and the sense of freedom that you receive, that sense of absolution, of being able to let go.
1: Jared, do you think the confession is this ancient pre science version of evidence based therapy?
2: Well, I certainly think priests were the forerunners of psychotherapists in the sense that they were listening. And it came down to the individual priest as to how they responded, whether that was a good experience for people or a condemnation and judgment. You know, confession is a disclosure and we know often with children who start to tell a secret they'll tell you a little bit at first testing out to see whether you understand whether you're okay to hear more of the secret i think sometimes the confessional gives people an opportunity to go to somebody who um there's a contract that that person is not going to say disclose that to anybody else and this gives them a space of safety
0: can I just add something to that confession in the Anglican context, we don't have confessionals, we don't have boxes, but the pastoral conversation is a really important part of it. You know what what is causing this? Um, what ways can we look at to overcome it? So it is not just a a formalistic kind of transaction.
1: Jared, it could well have been, had things turned out differently, that you were receiving confessions. As a cleric, not as a clinician. As a young man, you lived in a Catholic seminary, studying to be a priest. But not all the rituals you observed there were healthy, were they?
2: Well, there were there are formal rituals and there are informal rituals, I guess. I was in the seminary in the early eighties. I was age nineteen when I was there. You were isolated potentially for five years. You know, wherever you get one hundred and twenty-five blokes together, you get a fair amount of psychopathology. There was a lot of alcohol abuse. It was a, a nightly event that people would be drunk. There was a whole lot of sexual liaisons between the guys, of course. Uh, there was uh, sexual misconduct on the part of priests, both inside and outside of the seminary. It was horrible. There was a lot of people that were very depressed anyway. Uh, and so people struggle, of course. They're also isolated. Some, um, they're away from family and friends and support. So I now recognize It was a pathological environment. There's no two ways about it.
1: But the message of Jesus stayed with you?
2: That's always stayed with me, yeah. What I've jettisoned is a childlike understanding of church and spirituality. I guess I now have a professional view of how the church operates, uh, its strengths and its weaknesses. And I guess I'm, you know, a work in progress for how I can get in touch with that spirituality that was so central to my life back then. It's certainly been lost for a long time.
1: And Reverend Dr Dorothy Lee, you have maintained a connection with the institution of the church, in fact, at high levels. How do you relate to what uh, Jared has said?
0: Oh, look, uh, I mean, I can understand uh, what he's talking about. I mean, that pathological point um, is true of a lot of our upbringings in the church. Certainly, uh, I had nothing to do with seminaries or anything like that, but I was brought up in a very, very conservative environment, a form of Presbyterianism, which was extremely conservative, uh, very masculine. It does have its own pathology. Um, so the question is how you deal with it. Well, I mean, I did wander away from the church for a period of time, but but in the end, you know, what I can't let go of is Christ. And whatever the failings of the church, um, as I've experienced it and as others have, at the centre of it, there's Christ, there's the Bible, there's the sacraments, and they call me back when I feel disillusioned. And it's that relationship with Christ that has been very much the centre of my life. And it's made me realise that the church is a fallible place, but I also believe the church does a great deal of good, even in all the damage that's been done.
1: Now, back to confession. Dorothy, one person's sin, of course, is another person's great night out. So, (laughs) So, Dorothy, what is sin? And if you don't believe it's wrong, does that mean you've nothing to confess?
0: I think there are occasions, and and indeed I would see that part of the pastoral conversation around confession is to determine whether it is sin or not. I have a friend who, who tells me that women sometimes come and confess that they haven't obeyed their husbands, in which case, you know, you need to say, well, actually this is probably a good and healthy thing it is not sinful to uh, disobey um, your husband you're not under authority to your husband theologically sin is an act essentially against God that somehow denies the goodness and life-giving and loving nature of God and therefore is destructive towards human beings it's very hard to define sin we used to say that sin was pride and and that is certainly a sin but it can't sort of sum up sin. I think sin is basically a, a state of alienation against God, against other people, against creation. And uh, and what we are t- attempting to do in confession and in other ways is to overcome that alienation. We believe that God has already, in a sense, done that in Christ. And we're trying to make that effective in people's lives so that they truly experience a deep and abiding sense of connection, of being loved and affirmed by God and loved and affirmed by others in the community and connected also to the natural world, to creation.
2: You know, when we're talking about sin, it's conscience, reflective function in in psychological terms, a person's capacity to think about what it is that they're doing to themselves, what are they doing to the other. And I guess this is, as a forensic psychologist, my secular definition of sin would be, you know, harm. Am I causing harm to another person. And as a psychoanalyst, I would be asking the question, am I causing harm to myself? Repetitive thoughts that drive us spare. This is a harmful act that we do to ourselves. You're not going to get arrested for it, but it's certainly going to impair your ability to relate to other people and to feel good about yourself, which would have all sorts of uh, ripple effects across your life.
0: Yes, I think that's a really great point. Terrific.
1: On RN, it's God forbid. We're with Dr. Dorothy Lee, a professor of New Testament studies at the University of Divinity, the Trinity College there. She's an Anglican priest and a member of the Church's Doctrine Commission. Also, Dr. Jared Webster, a psychologist who's worked with survivors and perpetrators of child sexual abuse for over 25 years. And it's that we'll talk about next, but with the warning that it could be stressful, even triggering for some people. If you have issues related to this, you might want to call Lifeline or the Blue Knot Helpline, which provides specialist support for adult survivors of child trauma and abuse. Their number is 1300 657 380. We'll put links on the God Forbid website. The Blue Knot number again, 1300 657 380. It's God Forbid. They are statistics almost beyond reckoning But according to the New South Wales Commission for Children Child sexual abuse will be experienced by at least one in nine boys And one in four girls The overwhelming majority of perpetrators are adult men Known to the children Most likely living in the family home and as we now all know the royal commission has shed a bright light onto institutional abuse as well the churches charities faith groups and organizations whose job it was to help not harm the vulnerable so jared webster the australian catholic bishops conference president archbishop mark coldridge he came out with a very strong statement in the last few weeks bishops failed to listen failed to believe and failed to act they allowed abusers to offend again And again, never again, he says there will be no cover-up nor transferring of people accused of abuse nor placing the reputation of the church above the safety of children. Do you believe the church is sincere in that
2: regard? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I certainly think it's an aspirational statement that is long overdue and needs to be said across the world.
1: Reverend Dorothy Lee, what has been the effect of this Royal Commission on the leadership of the Anglican Church?
0: Well, it's it's been a wake-up call for us as well, as it has for for every institution where we've been finding this happening. There's been a desire to protect the reputation of the institutions, but I think in the Church also there's been an incredible naivety with a very high view of priesthood, so that if you're confronted with a mother uh, talking about her child, you're going to believe the priest over her because, A, you don't think that people could do such appalling things and, B, you know, uh, this is a priest who wouldn't lie. It's been a a shock to us. Apparently good and godly and holy people have done (coughs) these truly appalling things to children.
1: And that's a terrible equation you speak of there because it means the worse the abuse, the less likely the victim and survivor will be believed.
0: Yes, exactly, exactly.
1: How has this affected you personally?
0: I remember when I was a child, there was a, a minister in, in our church who um, was always trying to get us girls to go for walks with him. And it came out some years later that he was accused as a pedophile. I remember my father, who was a minister and a very, very wonderful man in many ways. And uh, I remember my father saying to my mother and me, oh, I don't believe this story. You know, this, this man would never have done an appalling thing to have sex with a six-year-old. It's just so he, he was a godly man. There's no way. And my mother said, I believe it, because she said we used to protect the girls from him. And that same situation has replayed many times. And the Royal Commission has been incredibly painful for us, but incredibly important. We needed to go under the knife. And so we welcome the Royal Commission as a very painful gift.
1: And Dr Gerard Webster, you say the Royal Commission has been overwhelmingly worthwhile as well. But has it left unfinished business in terms of familial child sex abuse?
2: Well, yes, we think that about 80% of all sexual abuses perpetrated within the child's own home. I guess the, the Royal Commission has been a radical challenge to the silence or the repetitive pattern of forgetting that this is a major issue. Within the Catholic Church, for example, this has been a major issue since 40 AD. There are documents, there are edicts by various orders, uh, the church set it up, itself up uh, in opposition to the sexual abuse of children, to use our current language, uh, that was common amongst Greek children in antiquity.
0: Oh, yes. Uh, and in pagan
2: times. In pagan times. Oh, yes. And, and since then, there've been cautions where the younger monks should be kept away from the older monks. This has gone throughout the centuries, the Reformation. This was picked up then. So there's nothing new about this in the church. What's new is the church has been held up to account. There is now expectations that the institutions will put in place procedures All of those things are are doable because we're talking about institutions with policies and practices that can be vetted. In the family home, of course, you've got power dynamics that are very similar uh, where people in high positions of power exploit that position in order to sexually abuse children. And that is commonplace, as you can see. More than 10% of our children are sexually abused. Most of them are abused in their own home by somebody who is in charge of their care, or who they love.
1: And Dorothy, as repulsive as the concept of being sexually attracted to a child is, the attraction itself, as the law currently stands, is not a crime. It's choosing to act on that desire that most certainly is a crime. But do you think it's a distinction that can get lost because of our natural repulsion at pedophilia?
0: Yes, I mean, it certainly is how we act on our desires that matter. But there's even a sense that we can encourage them within ourselves. And that, in Christian terms, is also sinful. Having the desire is not, any sort of desire is not sinful. But I think indulging the fantasy within yourself, even if you don't act on it, is not okay either. And, and I think we recognise that. We, we we don't permit people to have child pornography, for example, because that's a way of indulging the fantasy. Um, and even if we do it within our own mind without actual pictures, I think we're engaging in grossly um, self-harmful behaviour. Um, so uh, if we find that we have those desires, then we need to get help.
1: And the person who actually professionally provides that help on a daily basis is Dr. Jared Webster. Jared, what happens when an abuser of children walks through your door?
2: Well, uh, if I could reframe the question, what do I do when a person who has abused a child walks through my door? What's uh, the difference? Well, a person is much more than what they do, it's much more than their failings. And my goal is, of course, to help that person it's also to help the community become a safer place i'm not going to do that if i start from a judgmental alienating stance
1: do you find it hard to not be judgmental especially when you see the most extreme
2: of your patients look i if i'm working with a particularly narcissistic person who is has a sense of entitlement that that really this is either entirely the child's fault or initiation or is making way too much out of what happens, you know, that gets my blood boiling. It crosses the spectrum from absolute denial of them being the victims. Uh, How can that be constructed in a mind? (laughs) In some cases, we're talking about some very seriously disordered people, you know, that have uh, reaped havoc uh, in the lives of many Many children.
1: So, what would that person say to themselves that turns them into the victim in their mind?
2: I was just teaching the child about the love of Jesus. Goodness me. Oh, God. And variations on that theme. But it goes right through to people who are completely remorseful, who in their mid 20s engaged in grossly inappropriate and illegal behavior with children in their charge and then snap out of it, who make active decisions to stop doing what they were doing, and then decades down, as we know, the average of about 35 years passes before child victims of abuse from clergy will come forward. Uh, they then, as you know, three or four decades down the track, having mended their ways, having repented, having maybe dedicated their lives to reparation to the community, will then be a call to account for things that they did back then.
1: And of course, this range of reactions, the way abusers think about themselves, is mirrored in the secular world as well. I remember there was a case of a father who repeatedly raped his daughter. He was caught and convicted, and his wife, the child's mother, was so shattered and distraught by the experience, the father actually thought. That his wife was angry because she was jealous that he was in a relationship with another person.
2: yeah, um, there's a lot of terms for this cognitive distortions as the as the most common where people believe their own bull. they've got a story that allows them to minimize in their minds the harm that has been done by them. That's at the extreme. And, I mean, we all do that to an extent. We sculpt the truth to suit ourselves. But we're talking about something that is so serious here that the distortions are disordered. But to talk more about, I guess, the person who comes in the door for the first time, it's to meet them, to try and form a connection with them, to start to build a rapport just as you would with any other patient for any other reason, where the person is able to start to open up and tell you, not only what they've done, that's often been established, um, but why they did it. What was their journey that led them to do it? What were the things that day that went on that might have led them to act in that way? Whereas there are a hundred other days where they might have been tempted to abuse a child, but they didn't.
1: Is it true that not all people who sexually abuse children are pedophiles and not all pedophiles sexually abuse children?
2: Absolutely. I mean, that we, we collapse these categories.
1: Yet both those things would jar with the public imagination.
2: Yes, when they're not denying that it's happening under their noses.
1: But why would a person not sexually attracted to a child rape a child?
2: Well, it could be all sorts of reasons. I mean, there are some people that are just absolute psychopaths, uh, antisocial personality disorders. They'll, they'll break every crime in the books. There are other people that are, are sexually boundaryless. They, they don't care who they have sex with. They just want to have sex. Pedophilia is, is a desire for children. And that is a repetitive pattern that goes on for at least six months.
1: And it starts, what, at puberty?
2: For some. uh, For some, some of the adults will say, you know, I look back and I had a crush on a kid in kindergarten and... Uh, I kept growing up, I became a teenager, I was still attracted to kids in kindergarten and now I'm a man, I still am attracted to those kids. There's lots of debates about pedophilia. One of them is, is it a sexual orientation uh, or is it a disorder or is it just simply a crime, a, a decision that somebody makes?
1: Dorothy, there is of course the argument that the person best placed to deal with the pedophile is not Jared, the therapist but the prison officer in a jail. That is your safest and most assured way of ensuring children are kept safe.
0: I don't agree with that, actually. I mean, I'm not saying that we shouldn't jail people. I think people should be jailed if they're a danger to the public and especially to children whom we have to protect. But I think the Gerrards of this world are absolutely essential. In fact, I would even go so far as to say the work that you're doing, Jared, has a kind of priestly function to it. In terms of developing a relationship of trust, which is based on love of the other and enabling them to move beyond the situation they're in, to come to understand the harm they've done to themselves and to others, all of that is deeply Christian, deeply spiritual, and not just Christian. Other, A number of other religions would also say the same thing.
1: And Jared, of course, the challenge for the criminal justice system is you can't jail a pedophile who hasn't offended and... You don't want a pedophile to offend, so you can then put him in jail.
2: No, and um, the tragedy of the focus on incarcerating people is that our treatment research is incredibly favorable. For, mm. for those who go into treatment, it halves the recidivism rate. I don't think there's another treatment for another problem where the risk of reoffending is as successful in being reduced. So we have now the intel on how to really help these guys.
1: And what you mean by that is help the children.
2: Well, of course. That's the for me, that's the overriding goal. How can we protect our children? How can we reduce the number of children who we have a responsibility to protect as a community. There are things we can do that would reduce, significantly reduce the number of children that are abused, and we don't do it. We don't provide treatment to offenders. We put obstacles in their path when they want to get treatment, and the list goes on.
0: I think in a way the prison solution is a quick fix and we don't care about those people in prison. We'll throw away the key and... Well,
1: that's a long fix, which is what It's advocates... a long
0: fix, but it's a quick fix in the sense that we won't put the money into actually looking at reforming that behaviour.
2: Or worse, it's a no-fix because we're just locking people up and, and creating yes. a space of a few years, seven years... 12 years, two years, where they're not out and having access to children, but we put them in the most pathological of environments. Yes, Yeah. So we traumatise these guys who often have their own history of trauma as children, but as part of that punishment, they actually get harmed further. It's crazy. And yet we've got an alternative and that's treatment.
1: But what is it about the treatment that is effective? It seems to be one of the more intractable problems, a, a
2: person's sexual
1: attraction to a
2: child well but remember also pedophilia is arguably intractable and that's but that is also debatable we won't get into that but not everybody has their repetitive cycle as something that lasts forever and ever you know there are people who will be attracted to children because situational variables that are for some horrible reason leading them to start to be attracted to children so it's a matter of looking at the uniqueness of the person if we keep talking about this class of pedophiles we're going to miss the uniqueness of each person Everybody has their own story. Everybody has their own future. Everybody has choices. What we can do is help people become more in tune with themselves, more aware of the choices, and we can skill them up with tools that will help them reduce the risk of making the wrong choices.
1: And you say that is especially true in this horrific area of children who sexually abuse themselves.
2: You mean children who sexually abuse other children? Yes. Yes. Well, look, I mean, the sibling abuse issue is is major. 30% of all sexual abuse against children is perpetrated by another child. We know that. We intuitively know it at least because we keep boys separate from girls. We don't have them sleeping in the same bedrooms. And yet sibling abuse goes on. The issue with children is very different to an adult abusing a child. If you have a child who is still growing up, who's still trying to figure it out, is still, like most adolescents, will be making a huge mistake from time to time, won't be taking into account all of the factors that need to be taken into account, have no idea of what the possible consequences are for a particular act, we have to think about them as children in a, in a very radical process of change. We're always in a process of change. We're never the same. We weren't the same as we were yesterday, but, uh, and that's as adults. But as children, they, they are very different from one month to the next. That's part of being a teenager, for example. So at a time where mostly boys uh, have a whole lot of hormones racing through their bodies, a whole lot of neuronal pruning going on, a whole bunch of things happening in their bodies. Uh, And as they're growing older and they have more exposure to other children without supervision, then you've got the makings of sexual abuse.
1: And, Dorothy, this sounds like a it's an area that just doesn't sit on the social register of what a child is, you know, the idea of a child raping a fellow sibling, a fellow child, is just off the register.
0: Yes. I mean, I'm thinking theologically as as Jared is speaking. And uh, I mean, we have a belief that's rather unpopular these days, um, and we might need to bring it back out of the cupboard. And that is the belief in original sin. Now, original sin is not, nothing to do with sex. And it's not saying that everybody's born evil, but it is saying that children enter into a world where there are extremely harmful things that occur to them and that come from them, and that all of us are on a path to redemption. Now, that's theological language, and that includes children. And children are capable of sin, uh, of sinning against themselves and against others. And as they grow older, um, it's important for them to develop a self-awareness and a capacity to forgive and be forgiven. Um, I mean, that's not saying that children are evil, not at all, but I'm just saying that we're all in the same boat. We're all in a world that is, in theological terms, fallen and is not the way that God wants it to be or that God plans for it to be. And uh, and therefore, children are part of the issue as well.
2: I think um, one of the points I would take from what you're saying around original sin is that the children are born into an imperfect world. Often the, exactly. children, often the children that are perpetrating these crimes are born into families that have major, major problems. A lot of the children who are sexually abuse are either exposed to domestic violence or are the victims of extreme physical abuse. We often think about them being victims of sexual abuse and that they're repeating the behaviour, and that's certainly true of many of them. But the vast majority are exposed to the terrible behaviour of their parents.
1: Why would parental physical abuse lead to a child sexually abusing?
2: I think there is something incredibly disturbing to see two grown-up powerful people, the most powerful people in your life... Mum and Dad. Mum and Dad are uh, going for it, going at each other with extreme aggression and one of them being defeated. They're not showing any self-control. They're demonstrating might is right and that you can do yes. whatever you like to another person and that's absolutely fine because it's all within the walls of this family and don't you dare say a word about it
1: so why wouldn't that overlap then into the sexual dimension of all our lives
2: that's right you you add in a child that has had premature sexual experiences and a lot of children are now being exposed to pornography Puberty kicks in, so you've got sexual desires growing, and so you've got these principles that parents teach their children that are pathological, add in sexual desire, and you've got child sexual abuse perpetrated by another child.
1: On our end, it's God forbid. We're with Dr Jared Webster, a forensic psychologist who's worked with survivors and perpetrators of abuse, including children, for over 25 years. He's the former president of the Association for the Treatment of Sexual Abuse. Also with us, Reverend Dr. Dorothy Lee, a professor of New Testament studies at Trinity College at the University of Divinity. And look, I know this is difficult listening, but it is important for the facts and issues to be known. If they've raised issues for you, you might want to call Lifeline, or in particular the Blue Knot Helpline, a specialist support group for adult survivors of childhood trauma and abuse. The blue knot number is 1300 657 380. We'll put links on the God Forbid website. The number again 1300
2: 657 380.
1: The Catholic Church responded to the Royal Commission into institutional responses to child sexual abuse by accepting almost all the recommendations, 98% of them, but with a notable exception, the seal of confession. The Church and its priests say they'd rather go to jail than reveal secrets told in the confessional, known as the Sacrament of Penance and Reconciliation. Here's the President of the Australian Catholic Bishops' Conference, the Archbishop of Brisbane, Mark Coleridge who argues removing the seal of confession won't help child
2: safety. In fact, in some circumstances, it may even make them less safe. Were trust in the inviolability of the seal undermined, any chance a victim would mention this in confession to a priest would also be seriously diminished. Any chance a priest confessor might have to impress upon the victim the need to inform responsible adults and find a way to safety would also be lost. We believe that legislation abolishing priest penitent privilege is based in fact on a lack of understanding of what actually happens in confession and therefore tends to move in a purely hypothetical world. It won't make children safer and it will most likely undermine religious freedom. That's why we think it's bad public policy.
1: The Archbishop of Brisbane, Mark Coldridge. Jared Webster, do you agree with him?
2: I have mixed feelings about it. But, I mean, I think people who want to be safe around children, who want to change, who recognise that something's going on for them that places them at risk of harming a child, they may want to make use of a situation where there are some guarantees that if they disclose what's going on in their mind or some of the things that have been happening that they can, as a first step, open up at least to somebody.
1: Without their secret being revealed.
2: Without the secret being revealed.
1: But you deal professionally with this, and you don't have that ability. You have to abide by mandatory disclosure laws if you hear of abuse.
2: Certainly. Mind you, the mandatory reporting laws are different in every state. Uh, There's an incredible um, variation but the, the basic principle is, if you believe that a child is at significant risk of harm, you have to report them to the authorities. Also, there's the what used to be called misprison of felony, which is now concealing a serious indictable offence. That's in New South Wales. There are different laws in different states around what uh, we as citizens are required to do.
1: Dorothy, tell me about the debate within the Anglican Church as to how confessions of abuse should be handled.
0: This has been a, a really big issue and uh, I've been involved in discussions at, at synod level at uh, in the Doctrine Commission. The view of perhaps a majority of Anglicans is that in the case of, of child sexual abuse, the seal can be broken, although we don't technically talk about the seal of the confessional, um, that it can be broken um, in that case and that it should be disclosed. Um, There are quite a number of us, however, who take a different view and believe there is a seal of the confessional and that it is a conversation between God and the person who's confessing and therefore it does have a secrecy. It has a very serious obligation. I would agree with Archbishop Coleridge on this point that once we say that the seal can be broken pedophiles will not confess, and that can actually exacerbate the situation. I mean, in, in my case, if if I was to, and I never have incidentally, but if I was to hear a confession from someone who'd abused a child, I would actually withhold absolution until I had gone with them to the police, because repentance always involves wanting to do what you can to fix things.
1: Well, earlier this year, we spoke with uh, Catholic Auxiliary Bishop Richard Umbers from the Sydney Archdiocese. Have a listen to what he says. He says he can't compel someone confessing child sexual abuse to go to police, even as a condition of absolution.
2: So the priest is not there as a counsellor, even though there may well be a lot of advice given. For instance, I mean, if someone came to me, I'd be there for a long, long time with that person going through the, the, the consequences of what they have done. Perhaps even compelling them to go to the
1: police. I would advise I couldn't compel, but you can compel as a condition of absolution. No, I can't.
2: You? That would be breaking the seal if I was to ask someone to incriminate themselves publicly.
1: That's a conservative interpretation of the uh, Catholic canon law, because we've had another priest on Aaron, God forbid, who said in fact that's what he would do as a condition yes. of absolution.
0: Yes, it's it's. at what point does a seal, if we're going to use that language, become operative? And to me, it's not operative if the person doesn't genuinely repent.
1: Jared Webster.
2: Obviously, out of the Royal Commission, there has been a whole bunch of lawyers trying to discern what are the uh, legislative changes that can take place? What are the infringements that can be prosecuted? And that becomes another... A repetition of the same mistake that the churches are guilty of, which is a top-down approach. I mean, there's, there does have to be certain requirements on every citizen and every institution in the in the country, of course. But what's missing maybe, or what's needed more of, is this conversation. The churches have 2,000 years of experience in dealing with and arguing about these conundrums. Uh, yes. And a conversation is needed between the church and the state, not how to win points, but to figure out between the two, based on different perspectives, what is going to be most effective in reducing the risk of harm.
0: Yes.
1: On RN, it's God forbid we're talking about the sexual abuse of children, the impact it has. And the sad fact is that in the unlikely event, the abuse of a child comes to the attention of police and then ultimately the courts, justice in so many cases is still even then not always served. Abuse can be very difficult to prove, especially when years have passed, and the experience of survivors being cross-examined in court can re-traumatise the victims. 25-year-old Raquel O'Brien was sexually abused as a child by a family member. The perpetrator was ultimately convicted, but not before his defence painted her as a deviant alcohol-drinking teenager." She shares her family's story in this extraordinary new podcast series you may have heard about. Do listen to it if you haven't. It's called Silent Waves. Here's Raquel O'Brien.
0: My testimony was dismissed at various times.
1: Now, I'll put it to you that at no time over this period of time did Leonardo ever touch you inappropriately. He did. That he never touched you inappropriately at all.
0: He did, and I'm not lying.
1: The courts are based on centuries of tradition and they're well-established, long-held rules around evidence that don't take account of the
0: difficulties that you describe. Graham Taylor is a specialised trauma psychologist. We spoke of the re-traumatisation of survivors through the court process.
1: You know, one of the reasons why many victims don't speak up is because speaking up in itself is traumatic. It's bad enough to not be believed but it's worse to be you know attacked to be told by a clever qc that you must be
0: lying this is renowned Victorian lawyer dr judy corden who represents victims of institutional child abuse the cross examiner they're honing in on the person's vulnerabilities and they're exploiting their vulnerabilities which i think is utterly shameful to wittingly exploit that vulnerability yet again is very harmful. It's, it's psychiatrically harmful for the survivor.
1: That's an excerpt from the new podcast series Silent Waves, an amazing story of intergenerational familial abuse and survival told by the survivors themselves, led by Raquel O'Brien. We'll put a link on the God Forbid website. Jared Webster, as a forensic psychologist, you see the Court system in action, does your heart break when you see survivors re traumatized in the witness box like that?
2: Yes, it breaks also when I, in therapy, speak to people who are too afraid to go through a process like that. I do think that the adversarial system is hugely problematic. We do need a robust system that allows for allegations to be tested. The problem with child sexual abuse, of course, is that. These incidents are tested in court a long time after they take place. There are issues around memory, there's issues around recall. Some of those things in various states, for example, are being picked up. And so there's more recognition of the vulnerability and hopefully we're headed in that right direction.
1: And Reverend Dr Dorothy Lee, it seems intolerable.
0: It is intolerable, but of course Jared is right. We can't simply take accusations at face value. But it doesn't need to assume Um, the very worst about the person and degrade their character, um, the victim. All it does is to um, reveal how robust you are yourself um, in being able to cope with that sort of cross-examination. But it's not necessarily bringing out the truth.
1: On RN, it's God forbid we're with Reverend Dr Dorothy Lee, a professor of New Testament Studies at Trinity College at the University of Divinity. She's an Anglican priest and a member of the Church's Doctrine Commission. Also, Dr. Jared Webster, a psychologist who's worked with survivors and perpetrators of child sex abuse for over 25 years. And if this topic has been difficult or even triggering for you, you might consider calling Lifeline or the Blue Knot Helpline on 1300 657 380. It provides specialist support for adult survivors of childhood trauma and abuse, There are links on the God Forbid website. The Blue Knot number, once again, 1300 657 380. I'm James Carlton. It's God Forbid. Up next, mercifully, we are turning to Easier Fare. It's the lighter side of confession, provided by the Secular Street Confessional. If you're feeling the urge to confess your wrongdoing but you wouldn't dream of stepping foot into a church, do not worry because on the streets of Sydney, members of the Urban Confessional provide a secular service, free listening to anyone who wants it. It's an idea that originated in America and has been running in Australia for a couple of years now. The volunteers don't have any counselling qualifications or experiences. They just offer to lend their ears. On Compass earlier this year, we saw Andrew Spatieri and the Urban Confessional in action.
0: Hi, how are you? So, hey. Do you want to talk? I'm here to listen.
2: That's an interesting concept.
1: It's important because we don't listen enough in the world these days. You know, there's so much noise going on. You've got your work happening, you've got your social media happening, you've got your life happening. There's so many distractions in this world that we don't often take the time to either listen to others or listen to ourselves. And I think Open Confession teaches people to do that.
2: I'm overwhelmed at work. You know, my kids are causing me a hard time. I can't get to the cricket and to you know, the work event, what what do you say there?
1: Well, what's stopping you getting there? What's getting in the way? What's happening in your life? I
2: think we're achieving the ability for people
1: to have a genuine interaction and just to talk to you. you And people can speak openly and honestly, and in the past I've heard some really personal stories. I think people, once you get through that initial vulnerability, they have a level of comfort being with a complete stranger. and And they're happy to talk about whatever is going on in their lives, able to release that on you, and then they can walk off and just have their day as they planned. Andrew Spatieri and his Urban Confessional. We'll put a link to that Compass show on the God Forbid website. Dorothy, a worthwhile exercise?
0: Oh, dear. (laughs) (laughs) Look, if it's just for the the sake of allowing people to vent, then probably harmless and obviously a kind action. It's well-motivated, but... I mean, there are skills involved in listening. It's not just listening, it's active listening and listening without being judgmental, either consciously or unconsciously and um, how to make encouraging comments that don't put people down. Just cheer up country blessings, look on the bright side. You know, all those ridiculous cliches that actually, in fact, do more harm than good and leave the person feeling that they have not been heard.
2: Jared, is she right, Dorothy? I, I think so, yes. <laughs> you know, I think uh, uh, the risk of untrained people engaging in conversations about serious matters.
1: But you only have to log into Facebook to see half your friends confessing what a generation ago would have been an intimate detail. And you then you turn on the television and you're watching Big Brother, where complete strangers are confessing intimate things to an audience of Well, voyeurs. (laughs) Voyeurs? Voyeurs,
0: yes. (laughs) I am amazed at how incredibly judgmental responses to people are. And uh, I'm not saying that social media is a bad thing. Of course it isn't. And I myself am on Facebook and Twitter, but I have to be very careful what I say. And I I notice really quite nasty comments that people make, they would never make to someone's face. And I assume the worst.
1: On our end, it's God Forbid. Up next, Wits End.
2: Wits End.
1: Yes, it's Wits End, the God Forbid quiz. This week, two contestants confessing their knowledge or ignorance of trivia. Dr Jared Webster, who was a young man abandoned the Catholic seminary. Test your buzzer. Wait until the Pope hears about this. And Anglican priest Dr Dorothy Lee test your buzzer. Confess. Thank you, Miss Trunchbull from the movie Matilda. Now, <laughs> question. Pope Francis visited Ireland last month and to mark the arrival, a cheeky local bookmaker installed a giant drive through what? Any guesses?
2: Over to you, Dorothy.
0: Over to you, Jared. <laughs>
1: Over to me. The Here's the bookie with the answer.
2: We've made the ultimate drive through confession booth before the big man gets here. Repent decades of sins
1: in seconds. Yes, as a marketing <laughs> ploy, the bookmaker installed the giant kind of garage drive through confessional with these big curtains. You actually drove the car through the curtains and confessed your sins through the window of the car. Now, next question. In the hit film Pitch Perfect, members of an a cappella choir each confess a secret to the group as a bonding exercise. The Australian actor Rebel Wilson plays a singer called Fat Amy. What does she confess?
2: I know, but I'm not telling. <laughs> you're not going to get a confession out
1: of me.
0: Seal of confessional.
1: Let's hear from Fat Amy with the answer.
0: See, I guess I'm just not really living if I'm not being 100% honest. My real name is Fat Patricia.
1: (laughs) Everyone calls her Fat Amy, but she's actually Fat Patricia, and we all know her as the great Aussie actor Rebel Wilson. Next question. Which US president is reputed to have confessed to his father at the age of six, I cannot tell a lie, I chopped down the cherry tree?
0: Confess. Well, that was Abraham Lincoln, wasn't it?
1: Jared, do you
2: agree? Oh, absolutely.
1: Both wrong. Founding father George Washington, the first president of the United States. The confession is meant to (laughs) illustrate Washington's innate honesty, but uh, some historians say it's most likely apocryphal. Question. In his 13-volume autobiographical Confessions, which saint asked of God, Grant me chastity and continence, but not yet?
0: Confess. Augustine.
1: Quite correct, St Augustine of Hippo in the fifth century. Question, in 1967, which member of the Beatles created a furor with his confession that he had taken LSD?
0: Confess. John Lennon.
1: That's right. Both wrong, Paul McCartney.
0: (laughs) No, I don't believe Paul McCartney would have done that.
2: he's such a nice man.
1: (laughs) Let's hear from Paul himself to find out if he really is.
2: Paul, how often have you taken LSD? About four times. The thing is, you know, that I was asked a question by a newspaper. The decision was whether to tell a lie or to uh, tell him the truth, you know. I don't know what everyone's so angry about. But as a public figure, surely you've got a responsibility to lots of people. No, it's you've got the responsibility not to spread this now. You know, I'm quite prepared to keep it as a very personal thing. If you'll shut up about it, I will too.
1: Paul McCartney. It seems <laughs> public judgmentalism uh, did not come with Twitter. It was actually around a little bit earlier. Next question. In which book and movie, the movie starring Kira Knightley, are two young English lovers torn apart by a lie fabricated by a jealous younger sister?
0: Confess. Atonement.
1: Excellent. Well done, Dorothy Lee. The 2007 romantic war drama Atonement based on Ian McEwan's novel of the same name. Now, in that film, Atonement, 77-year-old Bryony Tallis is played by an actress who in real life ran for parliament representing the Workers' Revolutionary Party. This was her concession speech after she lost the election in the 1970s. The
0: working class must now build a mass revolutionary party to take over the means of production without compensation under workers' control.
1: An ambitious Trotskyist agenda, especially seeing she received only 572 votes. Who was that Trotskyist and actor?
0: No, I don't know. Mm,
1: Nope. Vanessa Redgrave, still working. Yes, still working as a great actor of uh, stage and film, aged 81. And with that, we have reached the uh, end of God Forbid, a low scoring match. I declare it a tie. (laughs) (laughs)
2: That's very kind.
0: (laughs) Wonderful.
1: Uh, Dorothy Lee, thank you so much for being with us.
0: Pleasure. I've enjoyed it immensely.
1: And Jared Webster, thank you as well. Yes,
2: thank you, James.
1: The Reverend Dr. Dorothy Lee is Professor of New Testament Studies at the Trinity College at the University of Divinity. She's a member of the Anglican Church's Doctrine Commission and her dozen plus books and chapters on the Gospel of John are studied around the world. Dr. Jared Webster is a psychoanalyst and forensic psychologist. He's worked with survivors and perpetrators of abuse for over 25 years, the former president of the Association for the Treatment of Sexual Abuse. His expertise on children who abuse also saw him co-write the guidelines that are now followed by Catholic schools across New South Wales. Don't forget you can subscribe to the God Forbid podcast on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Email me at godforbid at abc.net.au. I'm James Carlton. Until next week, remember to be good. God forbid.